We're in 1 Thessalonians. And in this uh, book, Paul was writing to the church that he was with just for a few months. And, and after he left, under threat of death, some false apostles came in and they started saying spurious untrue things about the apostolic band of Paul and Silas and Timothy, saying that they were doing this for greed, that they did not speak the truth. And at the same time that they said that, they were incredibly gifted, according to this letter, the detractors were incredibly gifted in flattering the church at Thessalonica. And as Edmund Burke says, flattery destroys the one who gives it and the one who receives it. And Paul would agree with that. Paul says, we, we, have, we have no buy-in to flattery. He says in chapter 2, verse 3, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. We speak the truth as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. But see, the, the opposite of flattery is not... I tell it like it is in spite of how it hurts or wounds people. Or, you know, don't blame me, I just speak the truth no matter what. The opposite of flattery, biblically speaking, is, is to speak the truth in love. For example, in Ephesians chapter 5 or 4, verse 15, it says, Instead, speaking the truth in love... We will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. And then verse 25 says, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor for all members of one body. Truth speaking is incredibly important in the body of Christ. Verse 29, the same chapter says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit or profit all. All of those who listen, and in this letter, First Thessalonians, Paul says, we loved you like a mother who tenderly loves the child that she is nursing. Or we encouraged you as a father who encourages his children with words of exhortation and words of cheer and words of urging you to go for it. So he says, no greed, but very sensitive in how we speak. No flattery, but very caring in the way we represent Christ before you. And so as, as, with that as a background, we come to this part of, of 1 Thessalonians 2 and 3 where Paul talks about the incredible importance of encouragement. And, and he, says, he says to this church that he was torn away from. That's his word. I was torn away from you. He says, I was very encouraged by you. Chapter 2, he says that I was encouraged, verse 13, and we thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. And I dealt with that little phrase last week, at work in you who believe. He says, he says the, the, the first thing we're, we're thankful for, out of, out of the blocks, he says, I am thankful that you received the word of God, not as the word of men, 
but as it actually is the very word of God, which is at work in you who believe, you, you, how you receive the word. There is, um, there's been a, a giant swing in the Christian church. There's a book called Evangelicalism in the 20th Century by a wonderful writer named Ian e. Murray. And he says a watershed event was, was a man named Friedrich Schleimacher who lived in, in 19th century Germany. And Schleimacher said it is not primarily important what the Bible says. It's important what you experience. And he said that little snowball kept rolling downhill and then in the aftermath of the Enlightenment became a, a giant snowball that thundered through the church. And so Schleimacher would say something like this, the manner, it's not what the scripture says, it's, it's the manner in which the feeling of absolute importance is to be related to how, how we live. And there's also a statement in the bulletin from the Baptist faith, the message. I thought I had a bulletin up here. I do. Conversely, the Baptist faith, the message says this, it says, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principle by, principles by which God will judge us and therefore, listen, therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union. And it is the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. So, so we believe, the Bible teaches this, we believe that the, that the issue is not what do you think or what do you feel? Or what have you experienced? The issue is, what does the scripture say? Now, please hear me. I've been in many places where people don't ask, what does the Bible say? In Christian circles, what does the Bible say? Well, what do you believe or what do you think? And really, that, that may be okay, but it may not be. There, I want you to understand and remember this. If, if this is the center of Christian union, some people say the center of Christian, the most important thing is what I have experienced. It's what I have experienced. It's what, it's, what, it's what Schleimacher would say. That's what many people say today. And, but what Paul is saying here and what, what the Bible says throughout is that, is that the, center of, of all, the center of all Christian union is, is Scripture. Scripture must be central. Not, not what I experience or what I kind of think cognitively. Is, is we always say, what does the Bible say? What says the Word of God? This is God's Word given to us. This is the Word of God. And so we always go to the Word first to understand and to make sense of life. And our experiences are mediated through the Word of God. The Reformers had, this, had two statements. One is, is, to the sources. To the sources. Which, which means, go to the Word. Go to the Word. Another statement was, the church is reformed and it is always reforming according to the Word of God. See, that's who we are. I, I hope, by God's grace, I want us to be the church reformed. We're Reformation heritage people. The church reformed and always reforming according to the Word of God. To the sources. What does the Bible say? God give us experience that is laden with the greatness of Jesus. One of my favorite experience statements is a prayer that Paul has for the church at Ephesus when he prays this, chapter 1, verse 17, 
I, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may, may continually give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation so that you may know him better. Oh God, by your Holy Spirit, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we can know you better and better. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know the hope of your calling and so that you know, may, may know the, the, the glorious riches of his inheritance in the saints and his incomparable power towards us who believe that power is like the working of Christ when he raised him from the dead. Lord, I want to know your hope, your riches, and your power. Give me the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And, and so one way that, that we can encourage each other, according to this passage, is that we receive the word of God as it actually is. It's not the word of man, but the word of God. Through the years, I've noticed that biblical people are just rooted. They're rooted. They're, they're, there's a rootedness. They're not like tumbleweed. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on the law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted Planted by streams of water. Planted. Plant, plant, listen, brothers and sisters. Planted. There, there's a, there's a, a, a rootedness. The same thing is said in Ephesians 4. It says God gives us different gifts in the body of Christ. So that we may not be tossed back and forth like children. See? But, but, but plant, we're, we're fixed. We're planted. In First Peter... Peter gives this statement to the, the church. He says, he says, for as Isaiah says, this, this is an incredible statement. For as Isaiah says, all men are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. And then Peter gives this commentary. And this is the word that was preached to you. Boom! What a statement. Planted, strong, vibrant. If we want to encourage each other, you, you, you receive it. You receive the word. And, and, and you ask yourself, what does the scripture say? And you humbly with brokenness receive it. it says the, the second way in this passage, it says that the second way that you encouraged me, the Apostle Paul says, is that, it says, for, for you were, verse 14, you were, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus, and you suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out of Thessalonica. They displease God and are hostile to all men. You're, you're, the second way you encourage is that you're, you're willing to suffer. I've been reading recently about the church in Nigeria. Nigeria is a country of 160 million, the most populous country in Africa. I, wrote, I read an article recently by Paul Marshall, who writes exhaustively for the suffering church nationwide or excuse me worldwide he's he's a senior fellow at the hudson institute 
for the Center for Religious Freedom. And Paul Marshall says that, that there are some 32 states in Nigeria and 11 of the northern states have adopted extreme Sharia Islamic law and they're burning ch- churches, they're persecuting Christians. The opening statement is, in Nigeria, thousands of people have been killed in recent months and tens of thousands in the last decade. There's one group that this year alone has killed over 300 people who claim the name of Jesus. And you read about the church and you read about brothers and sisters who who are willing to stand by the stuff. And I was thinking, how how do we translate that into our application to our our world? We, We have not been called to endure death. And I just thought one way we kind of think about it is I thought of what Jesus says in Luke 9, 62, that whoever has put his hand to the plow, whoever puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of the kingdom of God. So so we must be people who put our hand to the plow, the gospel plow, and we look forward and we're not moved. That's how we encourage each other. We're just faithful. I thought about faithful people who just do the right thing week in, week out, out of obedience to Jesus. And I thought about people that I've known, that maybe somebody, a man or woman, been married 40 years, and just say their average income through the years was $40,000. They weren't wealthy. But every year in their, in their tax return and their 1040, they, they gave at least 10% of what the Lord has graciously given to them as a means of worship. They just did it. And in their 40 years, maybe they had a well-meaning financial planner who said, here's your 40-year statement. You gave, on average, of, you gave $160,000 to the local church. If you had invested this at 6% compounded annually, that'd be worth, wow, $380,000, $400,000? You, you could buy a condo at Wild Dunes, maybe, for that. Get up every morning, drink your coffee, watching the sun rise. Wow. And they'd say, well, you, you don't understand. Our Savior said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Moth and rust corrupt. And for thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For moth and rust don't corrupt. And for thieves don't break in and steal. The Bible says, that we should be rich in good deeds. We should be willing to share. We should be open-hearted because in this way, we lay up for ourselves a firm foundation for the coming age, and we take hold of the life that is the life. I wish we'd given more. You don't get, see, hand to the plow. I want you to be hand to the plow people. If we had that vision, Wow. And if we did it, wow. We don't look back at the world. Man, oof, wow, yeah. Same couple. You know, they, they, for years and years and years, they just taught Bible school or Sunday school, kept nursery, nothing flattery. They wore plaid. You know, nothing fancy about them. But with every passing year, when the, the kids they taught come back, well, they see them, they get a hug. And they've impacted generations of children 
because they put their hands to the plow and they didn't look back. They were just faithful. So I, I think that's really the application for us of this, this little passage. Just, just being faithful. I read about this guy this week. I was, I was really reading Ronald Reagan's speech on the 40th anniversary of uh, D-Day. What's a good speech? Those of you who are young, just Google Ronald Reagan. Listen to a, a good speaker. And Reagan mentioned this guy's name is Bill, Bill Miffin. He said, I, I don't think, he said, I want to celebrate Bill Miffin. He says, Bill Miffin was a bagpiper for a Scottish regiment led by a guy named Lord Lovett, who is a swashbuckling, brave commander who's been compared to Rob Roy, which is a good comparison. Says at D Day, the Scott troops hit the beach. And Lord Lovett pulled Bill Miffin in. He said, You're my bagpiper. I want you to be at the head of the troops. And he said, But begging your pardon, sir, but the British Army regulations say the bagpipers have to stay in the rear, i.e., easy target. And Lord Lovett said, they, It does say that, but I want to remind you that we're from Scotland, we're not British. <laughs> he said, I want you out front. And so he, they stormed the beach, Sword Beach, blood. He lost half his men at Sword Beach. Bill Miffin playing Scottish fight songs. They went up the hill and went to a place called Pegasus Bridge where the British troops were pinned down. And the story is the British troops heard this bagpiper playing Scottish fight songs and they said, we're all having a simultaneous you know, dream. This can't be happening. And pretty soon they saw this guy, the only guy on the beach wearing a kilt, the same kilt his dad wore in World War I. Came over the hill. Lord Lovett came in and said, sorry chaps, we're a little late. Like he'd been held up on 17 bypass because of traffic. They won the day at the bridge and went on. Just playing his bagpipe. After the battle, and they talked to some captured German soldiers, snipers, they said, why didn't you shoot the guy in the kilt playing the bagpipe? And they said, we felt sorry for him. We thought he must be crazy. <laughs> I read about Bill Miffin playing the bagpipes, and I thought, we just do our duty. Just do our duty. We just do what we've been called to do. We get up, and we do. And sometimes we do the difficult thing. The thing that, that may not seemingly makes sense. I was reading about Rahab this week. I was reading the book of Joshua. Just finished it. And, and Rahab is the, uh, I don't know how to, make, how to make it more delicate. She was a prostitute in Jericho, this big walled city. Joshua sends in some spies to see what they had to do to take the city of Jericho. And so they wanted to melt in, so they went to the local bar slash house of prostitution where travelers go. The king of Jericho somehow heard there were spies there, and so he sent men to capture them and bring them to him. And she heard about it, and she took him up on the roof, and she hid them. And this is what it says. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, here's the confession of God, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on all of us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you. 
when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Shehan and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When our hearts heard of it, they melted. And everyone's courage fell because of you, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord Jehovah that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother and brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. It's a confession of Jehovah. She made a confession that God is God. And so she's risked her life. She's hid these men. She said, give me a sign. I said, okay, Rahab, here's the sign. When we leave, put a red rope from your window that's on the wall of Jericho. And when the whole wall falls, your house will stand strong and everybody in your house will be saved. If they go out, their blood is on their head. If anybody touches you while you're in the house, your blood is on our hands. I thought, here's Rahab. And she says, listen, guys, I just risked my life for you. I just hid you. I, I just bamboozled those who were searching me, telling them that you'd gone the wrong way, this way. I saved your lives. I asked for a sign, and you give me a red rope. You've got to be kidding me. Give me a break. But she did it. And she and all of her family became part of the covenant community of Israel. And she became an ancestress of Jesus Christ. You know, to me, it means doing the difficult, maybe even what would be scorned as the unnatural thing. Like forgiving your enemies. Like praying for those who persecute you. Like, like, like being pure in an impure age. Francis Schaeffer says about this in his little book, says Rahab stood alone in faith against the total culture which surrounded her. Just think about it. Something none of us today in the Western world has ever yet had to do. For a period of time, she stood for the unseen against the seen, standing in acute danger until Jericho fell. The unseen against the seen which is point three about encouragement. Point three is this, that uh, if we're to be an encourager, and we have to have a contemplation of eternity. Chapter 1, verse 10 says, Jesus will save us from the coming wrath. There's a great day of judgment coming. Chapter 2, verse 19 says, For what is our hope or our joy or our crown in which we will glory? In the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes, is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. Paul says, when he comes. If, if we're to be an encourager, we've got to have an eye fixed on eternity. And that's hard, guys. That's hard. Have to have our eyes fixed on eternity in a world that shouts only here and now. Only here and now. Only here and now. We have to put our hand to the plow and look and not look back. In this little book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul says in chapter 
4 regarding the coming of the Lord. And he lays it out and he says, verse 18, therefore encourage each other with these words. We should say to each other time after time, eternity awaits. We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. He says in chapter 5, verse 6, so let us not be like others who are asleep. Living only for the here and now, but let us be alert and self-controlled. Be alert and self-controlled. Be fixed. Be strong. And when I see people who are alert and self-controlled and they're going for it and they live that way, man, it encourages me. I want to encourage you like that. And then, and then there's this wonderful section here about Paul's response to the fact that they received the word and they were willing to be persecuted and, and that as he exhorts them to be heavenly minded, he, he, he talks about his response. I just read part of it, verse 17 of chapter 2. He says, but brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, torn away, which means to be ripped. We were torn away from you for a short time in person, but not in thought. Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, but we wanted to, but Satan stopped us. Next week, I'm going to preach on how Satan stops us. Satan stopped us. For, for what is our hope and our joy or our crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? In chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, he says this, Therefore, brothers, in all of our distress and persecutions, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. And, and then this is what Paul says. Listen to this. This is, this is, this is Paul. He says, but now, but now we really live. We really live since you're standing firm in the Lord. Man, we, we, we are jazzed. We're severely caffeinated because you're standing firm in the Lord. And then he says this, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? This is Paul. This is Paul who, who, who gloried in the sufficiency of Christ alone. But the, this is Paul whose heart is simultaneously cheered and broken by people. Just see that. To love is to have your heart broken and cheered. But that's the biblical calling, love. Years ago, eight, nine years ago, I talked to a woman, a dear woman, one of the most godly women I've ever known who's with the Lord now. And we were talking about parenting. And she said this to me, you have to realize that children are your report card. Close quote. And then she walked off and I, that several months later, I preached, you know, I, this woman I respect and admire said, that, so I, so I, I disagree with her. I, she was nameless. I said, only Christ and him crucified can be our ultimate report card. And I think that's right. But I think I misunderstood her. <laughs> I think I misunderstood her. Studying this passage, I go, that's what she was talking about. She was right and I was wrong. I hate to admit it, I was wrong, real wrong. You are my report card. The people you want to build into are your report card. What, 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 is, what is my hope, my joy, my crown? You guys are. 
My kids are. The guys I want to mentor are. And just, I, I, really, I, I was praying for, I was going through, praying for people this week. I said, you know, Joe, thank you for this family and this family. And this, th- thank you, Lord. I, I can't begin to thank them enough for all the joy I have in the presence of the living God because they are standing firm in faith. It cheers my heart. I've got a list of uh, our high school seniors right here. I've been praying over this list, just thinking. I've underlined several kids I know. There there are some kids on this list that are world beaters. Great kids. Excuse me, great adults. To love is to hurt and to be encouraged. Paul said, I, I was fearful. This is Paul. I, I want to, how does this fit into Romans 8? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. I, 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 he said, I was fearful that somehow Satan had tempted you. Let me read it. Make sure I get it word perfect. I, I was fearful that Satan had tempted you and, and our efforts might have been useless in vain. Now, Paul, how does that fit into Romans 8? I don't know. I think of the church of Galatia, the old church of Galatia. I am once again in the pains of childbirth for you. We just dedicate these beautiful kids up here. Listen, if you're newly married and you have not had children yet and you don't want to have your heart broken, don't have kids. They'll break your heart. If you're newly married and you haven't had kids yet and you want to sing and laugh and dance and roll in the carpet and act like a rhinoceros, have kids. They'll cheer your hearts. You'll thank God sometimes that such a wonderful being came from such a horrific genetic code. Then other times you'll say, where'd they come from? We have Barnabas partners in our church, pastors, Missionaries that we've tried to be intentional with and to encourage. There's a, there's a man that I love like a son who a few months ago just walked away from the Lord, walked away from his family. Won't return my calls. His wife told me, he's, you're the last person he wants to see. I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning for months and the first thing I think about is this guy. I think, Lord, you know, what, what happened? And then I think about Calvin Fowler and Savannah. Ken Vickery and Greer. Chris Hodge in Chicago. They were just dead on. I get happy. To love is to hurt. To love is to rejoice. Real quickly, don't ever forget the power of a spoken word of encouragement. This is painful for me to tell you because I am a cowboy fan. Was. Not really as much as I used to be. Okay. This is a horrible experience for me. I was in the eighth grade. 
I remember it well. It's called the Ice Bowl. It's played in Green Bay, Wisconsin. The Cowboys had outplayed the Packers, who were the champs. December the 31st, 1967. At this point in the game, this happened when there were 12 seconds left in the game, no timeouts. The windshield factor was minus 76 degrees. The field was frozen. Those days, there's no heating system. You couldn't get traction. It was third and goal, 16 seconds to go. Final timeout had been expended. This was going to be the last play of the game. Bart Starr, number 15, comes to the huddle and looks at that guy laying down, number 64, Jerry Kramer, and he says, can you get traction enough to block Jethro Pugh so we can run 31 dive? Jethro Pugh's number 75, a monster defensive lineman, probably the best lineman in the NFL at that time. And Jerry Kramer didn't hesitate. He said, I can do it. And so he got the leverage. You see, he blocked Jethro Pugh. Bart Starr fell into the end zone. The, the, the gun sounded. The game was over. And the Packers had won 20 to 17. Broke my heart. I was in the eighth grade. And this is the next year. I think it was the first Super Bowl and something like that. This is Jerry Kramer carrying off. His legendary coach, Vince Lombardi. Well, here's the rest of the story. Jerry Kramer played at the University of Idaho, trapped in the fifth, sixth round, something like that. Didn't have a great rookie year. And they brought in this fiery coach, this Italian, who played offensive guard at Fordham University. And Kramer was offensive guard. And during, during the preseason uh, practices, the coaches kept screaming at Kramer, you're too dumb, you're too slow, you'll never make it on this team. And Jerry Kramer said one day he was sitting at his locker in 1959, and he was thinking to himself, what in the world am I going to do back in Idaho when I'm cut by the Packers? He said, he's standing there, he says, trying not to weep. Vince Lombardi came by and smacked him on the shoulder and says, you know, Kramer, I've been watching you. If you work hard, I think you may become one of the greatest offensive guards in the history of the NFL. Kramer said it turned his life around. And at the 50-year anniversary of the NFL, guess who one of the starting guards was on the 50-year team? Jerry Kramer. Now, I say that, man, just encourage each other. I was encouraged about you because of your faith. Man. So thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for the ministry of encouragement. Let's pray. Lord, this is your day, and we thank you for the goodness of Christ. And we pray that you would let us be encouragers to people. And that we would, by, by, by the way we receive the word of God, by the way that we put our hand to the plow and do not look back, by the way that we are focused on the hope of eternity. And, and, and Lord, in response to that, as we, as we see that in people, may we just love folks and love those under our care, whether it's our community group or a Sunday Bible class, or it's a small group of men or women or couples, just our children, the people that you've placed in our path, may we love them in Jesus' name. Amen.